Welcome to Alone Upfront, the podcast for teachers who are doing it by themselves. And we're now on episode 11. It's a beautiful Wednesday morning here in the UK. The sun is shining. Steve, how are you? I'm very well. I'm about mm, 10 days, two weeks out from the start of the semester. Interesting times. There's no escaping it. It's it, it's coming. So uh, doing a bit of planning and thinking about uh, how to start the semester, how many courses I've got, what modules. And it's nice. Autumn's here in Berlin. All very pleasant. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Yeah, certainly feeling autumnal here too. It's uh, cooled down a bit. And in terms of my teaching practice, I am marking dissertations at the moment. So oh. a bit of a labour of love, uh, but I've managed <laughs> to get managed to get a couple marked and, you know, making good progress there. And then like you, Steve, yeah, I've got the new, uh, the new term as it works at the university I work at, the new term coming up. So a great time to be reflecting on our practice, picking up some top tips having some heated debates about teaching and just generally trying to improve as practitioners, I suppose. That's the idea. And if anyone listening, if you're teaching in a, a sort of isolated situation, you maybe haven't had training or you haven't got people telling you what to do and you're just expected to figure it out on your own, then that's what we talk about on this podcast. And the topic today is confidence, the role that confidence plays on the learner side of things. Teacher confidence and teacher resilience is a different topic, which we will definitely cover in an upcoming podcast. But for now, um, I was thinking about how do we best use confidence uh, to our advantage so that learners can learn in the most effective way? And what role does confidence play in that? Mm. So I'll start with a question as I tend to, Chris. What do you think is... Um, what do you think is more important, um, a learner's ability or a learner's confidence? Oof. That's a tough one, Steve. I mean, immediately when you said confidence, uh, I'm thinking, well, the number one role of a teacher is to build confidence. And I suppose, yeah, for me, you know, it's almost a chicken, a chicken and egg question, isn't it? Mm. Which one comes first, confidence or ability? Mm. But for me, just, you know, off the top of my head, I'd say the teacher's primary responsibility is to build that initial piece of confidence that allows a student to take a leap of faith into the subject and that leads to some ability, yeah. you know, just off the top of my head, that's the, that's the way I'd view it. I think it's certainly the the way we're used to viewing, like, like uh, building confidence is what you want to do. You know, mm. a lack of confidence is problematic in most areas of life. Um, it's rare that people say, oh, you're too confident. It does happen, though. I mean, overconfidence can be a problem. But I think far more often um, we hear about a lack of confidence, people lacking uh, belief in themselves, uh, in themselves. And especially in a learner context, the first thing I thought of well, is obviously the, the role of the teacher is to boost and build the confidence of the learners. Um, mm. That's That was my initial position when I started thinking about this. And um, in a way... I couldn't really think that there was an upper limit to this. I mean, you could just basically, basically the more confidence your learners have, the better. And that will be my second question. Do you think that's really true? If we say, if we say, if our presupposition is that teachers should be looking to build confidence in their learners, does that mean that m more confidence equals better learning ad infinitum? Or is there an upper limit? That's a good point. Um... So do we have, is it possible to have students who are, who are too confident 
mm. who've got who've got too much faith in their ability and might be uh, I don't know might be kind of dominating uh, classroom discussions or dominating group work because they've got too much faith in their ability and then you know more importantly when they go into the real world in fact in fact this has just popped in, into my head you know the mm. um, we're both working universities and yeah. um, there's certainly an issue in the UK with graduates going into the workplace and their bosses in the workplace are, are saying well these graduates haven't quite got the skills that we need uh in the workplace and it does it does concern me that uh i'm working in, in a business school in a university in the uk and the students get a lot of uh kind of promotional promotional and marketing material saying that once you enter the workplace you're going to be you know, right up there, you know, mm. you're going to be absolutely killing it in the workplace, you know. Mm. So it's not the student's fault that they feel that sense of confidence, but I do feel it it can be misplaced if we're getting these messages from the labour market that we're having to put graduates on four-year uh, training schemes mm. uh, in, order, in order to get them up to speed. So, you know, just thinking about it, I suppose in the classroom, you could have conf- uh, problems with overconfident students, but... We're also doing students a disservice if we're excessively building their confidence, and then when they hit the real world, yeah. you know, they feel they're not quite cutting it. I certainly felt that a bit in my twenties. It's a situation that's reflected in the secondary sector as well. Um, when I worked at a school, we there, there was this kind of developing problem of, of a sense of entitlement amongst mm. Um, mm. more capable students, where they would sort of march into your classroom and then and then some of them would start you you had behavior issue behavior issues developing because they mm. were they believed that certain tasks were beneath them we kept it so this is secondary yeah so we're right. talking about okay. in the uk we're called year nine ninth grade sort of 13 14 year olds and um and they would say look i'm a level five student i can do this and this i shouldn't have to do this task really? this is, yeah yeah <laughs> and um obviously it wasn't it wow. wasn't it wasn't exactly a widespread pro- it was sort of a niche behavior issue but it was mm. the kind i mean we had enough behavior issues um with kids uh, the lower uh, the lower end of the ability range because there is a certain correlation there mm. um and then these get compounded when you get learners at the upper end of the ability range who are then yeah, who have this sense of entitlement and are starting to cause problems. Mm-hmm. So you've almost given them tools to start yeah. cr- critiquing your teaching. <laughs> and you think, man, I've not shot myself in the foot badly here. <laughs> because, um, I to- yeah. Yeah, I, but I totally feel that. It wasn't the main problem. I had a student. Yeah, go on, Steve. Go no, on, but it, it reflects what you were saying in the, in the tertiary sector, mm. that um, if you just endlessly, I mean, there's, there's, there's not really the accountability that you have in the professional or vocational context. If you're very confident at in the classroom when you're learning and you do a good job, that's great. But if you don't do a good job, if you don't do a task that well, then you're not going to be sanctioned uh, like having a pay cut or losing your job or losing a big mm. project for your company like you would in the real world. A uh, teacher yeah. would generally be quite accommodating and say, well, you know, well done for trying and this is good, but there's elements that don't quite work. Now, that is possibly an issue because in the real world, if you mess up, there are consequences, mm, and those consequences totally. are not really reflected in the classroom. But what, what were you going to say? Oh uh, well, I was avoiding the word entitlement mm. because <laughs> it can be, um, yeah, you know, it's it's a bit of a loaded um, a loaded term. But yeah. I, you know, I I I feel that um, 
And I think it can be particularly acute in the university setting where, of course, students are paying a lot of money. Yeah. And there's this slight transactional feel to your relationship. You know, mm. I'm paying, therefore I want this. But one student gave me a comment, you know, and I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I have lots of problems with students because uh, I don't think I do anyway. But one student um, just this year, actually, yeah, so we've um, done... We've done a piece of, uh, you know, they've done a piece of coursework and I've given them uh, give them all individualised feedback. Mm. And this student came to me, you know, wasn't happy with uh, the feedback mm. and said to me, can I give you feedback on your feedback? Mm. Yeah. Alarm, and, bells, um, alarm bells ringing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And this 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 was in front of about 20 other students. As oh, well. really? Um, oh, wow. Okay. And there was something about, I mean... Maybe it's, you know, a perfectly reasonable thing to say, you know, it depends on your perspective. But, mm-hmm. well, there's there's no way I would have said that to a, to, to a lecturer personally. But it really it really cut deep with me. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously I, I, dealt, I dealt with it as calmly as I could. Um, but, um, yeah, there's something about, you know, we're, we're teaching these metacognitive skills mm. and it can be, I think, only in exceptional cases. You know, mm. it is... As you said at the beginning, it's quite a rare thing, but it can be kind of almost turned against you a bit. Yes. Um, and when it is, you know, I mean, I can't imagine being a secondary school teacher and having, you know, what, a 13 or 14 year old mm. oh, yeah. coming up to you and saying, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm a level five student. I mean, yeah. um, <laughs> it happened, though. It happened a lot. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that would cut deep with me as well. Um, so, so, yeah, fa- you know, I didn't see, as always, when we, you know, First talk about the topic i mm. didn't see all of these uh interesting kind of avenues we're going to go down but very very interesting stuff yeah i think i think the problems occur when the unstoppable force of good quality metacognitive driven learning meets the unstoppable object of summative assessment at the end of the semester mm. or the end of the term which is where we talked about this a few, mm. a few podcasts ago. There's like the good cop, bad cop aspect of the teacher. You spend the whole semester or the whole term being the good cop, encouraging your students, reflecting, helping them figure out when, when they've gone wrong. But then at the end, you become the bad cop and you slam them a grade because you have to, because you have to assess formatively and summatively. And then you have to justify that grade. And they feel somewhat alarmed because they're not used to it because you've, yep. you're, you're trying to empower them and uh, you're trying to empower them to understand their own, to understand their own ability level, and to understand what they need to do to improve. And they will have seed, succeeded in that endeavor to some extent. But mm. um, you also, as a matter of um, professional consistency and uh, and the standards of your institution, you have to apply um, the the grading standards and the, the grading criteria. And so, you, and you're not going to have a situation where every single learner of all the different ability levels and capacities comes and gets, gets a top grade. So, yeah. so, so they, it does open up a kind of a problem, a problematic situation where you've been boosting their confidence and really positively reinforcing their, their achievements. Mm. You have been cushioning the blow mm. um, by helping them to understand their deficiencies. And then at the end, that cushioning bit kind of falls away because you don't say, to be honest, you did the exam and it would be a grade C, but you know what, I'm going to let you do it again so you can get an A. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. And and that's where um, a teacher that does not practice in this way, that does not uh, look to the metacognitive level 
um, will have an easier job because the learners will not be expecting anything else. They'll mm. be expecting a mm. um, they, they they won't know what they're gonna achieve going into it, and and therefore they won't be surprised if their grading is maybe lower than they anticipated. Of course, the idea is that the students should be going into their final assessment with a fair and honest idea of where they are likely to land in terms of grading. Sure. Um, sure. But, you know, human nature being what it is, it's perfectly capable of us all to have a certain level of cognitive dissonance where we sort of understand that this is the case, but we sort of want something else to be the case. And, you know, there's emotions at play there. It, it does make it tricky. And I think what we can say is that um, a kind of catch-all policy of trying to boost everyone's confidence all the time does lead to problems it leads to this maybe this entitlement issue and it leads to um a mismatch between expectations and, and realistic ability when it comes to summative assessment another thing yeah. i'd like to talk about or, or a second aspect of this is the idea that we generally our learners are in in groups and whenever you have more than one person in a room you have a, a group dynamic and I think that group dynamics are incredibly relevant when we're talking about confidence levels. Um, and I think that often we we tend to think that if we can just boost everyone's confidence in the room, then then it's mm. all good. But I don't know if you can actually do that because mm. as one person's confidence rises, for whatever reason, mm. that's going to affect the confidence of the other people working with and around that, that yeah. person. So, so I'm not quite sure whether we might not be uh, making the task difficult for ourselves in that when we sort of praise one student or explicitly try to boost confidence in one area, that that actually reduces confidence in the students that didn't receive that feedback because they think, oh, that Possible. wasn't me. Yeah. I wouldn't have got it right. Is this something that, that you have noticed or experienced? Oh, I mean, <clears throat> that's not something I've reflected on explicitly. I mean, I think... Um, in the university context, uh, kind of, I mean, well, this is the reason why. I mean, I, I don't do a lot of individual praising. Yeah. Uh, you know, I might say, yeah, you know, good job. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't do a lot of in individual praising because um, I, I think a lot a lot of students would rather not, would just rather yep. not have it. You, mm -hmm. you know, they find it, they find it a bit embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, particularly overseas students. Um, mm -hmm. So... Um, it's not something. It's well, not but, some. It's not something I feel. I, I feel I do much, but 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 certainly kind of in a more uh, when you're speaking to everybody. Yeah. Certainly trying to provide motivation, uh, you know, trying to create a safe space for them mm -hmm. to do their group work and to do a whole class activities. Yeah. That's so. That's that. I do certainly do plenty of that. I, the, the, the broader question would be for us mm. both to ask ourselves: What measures do we undertake on a on a lesson yeah. to lesson basis to build confidence? Yeah. Um, or, yeah. or, or, or do we? I mean, we're talking about, or you should be, or should you, or should you not be building confidence? But what do we actually do? Um, I'm just thinking about that myself, and I agree yeah. with you that that um, praise um, is is an interesting thing when given out on a group, individual, or a whole class basis. There's a, a famous ratio, which UK teachers have probably heard, which is the ratio of um, praise to sanctions that mm. you should be aiming for. Do, so there's like, do you have any, if we, for every one sanction, what do you think the number of sort of instances of praise should be? Or oh, what, 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 could, what could you imagine we were told? 
our kind of aspired ratio? Well, it's, it must be something like 20 to 1. Well, well that, would be, that would be genuinely, um, that would be really tough. It was, it was 6 to 1 was the ratio. 6 to that 1, were, okay. I mean, very, yeah. very arbitrary sort of thing. But yeah. um, the idea was that, you know, if you can get a situation where for every sanction you're applying six instances of praise, then mm. the, the subjective experience from your learner will not be of a teacher that's hectoring and nagging and constantly yeah. bashing them, but rather one that broadly supports them um, with the occasional sanction. Of course, the challenge in this is finding enough instances to praise because these, and, these kids and, offer plenty of opportunities for sanction. Yeah, um, and also different different ways to praise so that it doesn't just become a, a kind of commoditized and um, yes, you know you're yeah. going to find different. Well, maybe or, or, or maybe it is good for it to be commoditized, you know. And you see students getting stars and stuff. Yeah. Um, so maybe in some some instances instances it's better for, for it to be commoditized. But I think if you go to a un, you can't go to a university student for example and give them a star. You know, no. so, it's, so so the praise has got to be, um, it's got to be. I think I think it's got to be more subtle, yeah. Um, and it's got to be delivered, possibly delivered it in in a different way. But in, in the university environment, you don't have, you know, you don't have sanctions really either. So I suppose it's a different dynamic altogether. Yeah, well, I mean, you have sanctions of a, of a different level, and you have behaviour issues at a different of a different magnitude. Um, mm. I mean, the, the out of the six to one praise to sanction ratio comes the, again, a very famous adage, which uh, our, my parents or our parents told me they used to be teachers, um, which was you got to catch them being good, as in catch yeah. your, ca f actively seek for moments when you're, in this case, the school pupils, when they were doing anything right and say, well done, good job on that. Um, mm. And this, this, I mean, it meant that with problematic, I mean, um, learners, pupils for whom behavior was a real challenge, um, they, you get the habit of, if they walked into my classroom and managed to get to their seat and not push anybody or shove or chuck their bag on the floor or shout, then that mm. was a wonderful opportunity to, to say to them, wow, look at you coming into my classroom like you mean business. This is clearly giving me a great lesson. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I like your attitude already. And yeah. for all the commoditizing that that might engender, um, one got the feeling with those particular pupils that they were not getting a lot of praise anywhere else in their lives, to be honest. Mm. Mm. And um, and even the most hardened, uh, problematic learner would sometimes beam and smile and and mm. acknowledge that, um, and and you'd be off to a good start. But it was yeah. but it was but it required a lot of energy, and you really had to get ahead of it because. I think I think one thing we without wanting to commoditize praise too much and without wanting to embarrass older learners or learners from international backgrounds I think we can all become more aware of taking opportunities to note good quality work um mm. or good quality behavior or good quality sort of attitude and not so much praise it but just kind of acknowledge it. Yes. Um and I I say this because I think that that means we don't have to so explicitly build confidence when it's almost too late. Um, my thinking is that if you got to, if you're at the if you're at the point where somebody where you feel somebody's confidence is lacking and is holding him or her back, um, then you then you have to start talking about confidence. But I think the act of hearing that, having to hear that again, in itself can be a blow to confidence to the. The, the picture learner, uh, but if you have managed to, um, in advance of this, 
as part of the daily uh, classroom discourse, if you've got into the habit of, of just acknowledging low-level quality behavior in mm. the way that we acknowledge low-level problematic behavior. So mm. in a university context, yeah, you don't get chairs get getting thrown around, hopefully, but you do get uh, mm. distraction. You do get um, people on their phones, people chatting a little bit too much. You get diversionary tactics, because people task avoidance, learners not wanting to get into it. And yeah. you do have to mention it. You know, it's a bit loud today, guys, or it's a little bit, you know, can we maybe have the phones away or, uh, okay, you guys at the back, I'm going to need more attention, that kind of stuff. Not hardcore sanctioning, but do we do that do we note the positive uh, version of that behavior? So when you have quite mm. attentive students or when you have a task which on the surface of it is quite quite hard and quite to get, good to get into, but you get a surprising level of engagement, do we acknowledge that in the same way that we acknowledge mm. the low-level behavior problems? I don't think we do. You tend to just mm. take the wins silently and think, yeah, good, mm. good, good. But then yeah. the problems you notice. And I think that this is something... This is something that I've, I think I need to improve in, in, in my teaching. Not so much individual, wow, that was amazing, you're, you're great, well done, embarrassing. But just kind of subtly acknowledging um, low-level good performance. Yeah. And I think that that um, doesn't boost confidence generally in the class or generally in the group without creating massive confidence mismatches and without embarrassing people too much. I think that's mm. one th one thing we can do, like acknowledge low level, good practice, good learning, good results in the same way you would acknowledge low level problems, mm -hmm. and don't and don't don't just take it take it as red, um, because then when you do have either a confidence issue or a behaviour issue with a, an individual or with a group, you can reach back and say, look, I just said twenty minutes ago how good this was running. We, we can mm. do this, you know. So rather than just saying, maybe you lack confidence, you can say, but look, um, last week we did this. Do you remember? I mentioned, I specifically said that was really good. And if you and if you have that store of evidence, then mm. I think that you can you can work with that. And it, and it makes um, appeals for people to, to develop more confidence a bit more meaningful. And they don't feel like, okay, but well, how am I supposed to boost my own confidence? I don't feel confident right mm. now. I find this terrifying. And you're saying I need more confidence. Well, how? And you're, saying, you're not saying that. You're saying, well, look, mm. we know that you can do this or we know that your group has performed well. And you've got like a stock of, of goodwill that you can, mm. you can tap into. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Anyway, so we have some of the problems with with excessive confidence boosting. You have this maybe this entitlement issue, mismatches in confidence, embarrassing students and maybe a way out which is sort of a subtle acknowledgement of of, of making it not, not making a big deal about it but noting acknowledging good good learning we have uh, we're going to take a slightly deeper dive into this in the second half of the podcast um, when we link confidence to the other thing i mentioned right at the start which is ability when you actually mm -hmm. link confidence and ability that's when things start getting really interesting but we'll save that instead we'll dive into our regular feature my and Chris's furious debate into an aspect of classroom, or classroom orthodoxy that we call, is it worth it? I have the coin, Chris. The topic okay. today, topic today. I've no idea what you, the you have no today. idea, you haven't been told. Um, is it worth it to spend time introducing yourself 
as a lecturer oh. or a teacher. Oh. I was thinking about this. At, at the start, yeah. I mean, this is a good time for it. Um, a lot of teachers have already started or are starting in the next few weeks. Should you be devoting serious classroom time to introducing yourself and your background and your history, or should oh, you not? Is I it really a, hope I get one side of is it. Is it a waste of time? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Chris, if the euro sign comes up, you're arguing for the motion. You should introduce yourself. If the other side comes up, okay. you're arguing against. I'm tossing okay. the coin now. Okay, you're arguing against the motion. Against. I'm arguing for the motion. So I'm arguing against introductions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that the one you wanted? Okay. Uh, that's that's the one I wanted. Yeah. Good. Okay. Fine. Well, that, that, that's because we've got to establish here. I mean, who is the um, who's the eminent thinker <clears throat> who says that? Who talks about? Who's the hero here? Who am I thinking about? Uh, is, it, um, is, is it Duarte? Uh, uh, Nancy Duarte, and who's uh, yeah. who you can find out. But she's talking about Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Um, okay, which you can also yeah. find on, on, on Google, which yeah, is which course. is yeah the base the template for many stories that we have in, in all cultures. Exactly. So, I think we've got a. Uh, we've touched on this before, many times in this forum. But if you think you're the hero of this physical situation you've got, where you've got 10, 20, 30 people in this room that's called a classroom, if you think you're the hero, then. I'm gonna go out there, Steve. I'm, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say you're in you're in the wrong job. <laughs> if you think you're the hero of that situation, because when it comes down to it, it's not about us, guys. It's not about us as teachers. And the only way to to do a good job, the only way to create value, the only way to even push teaching before, forward as a profession is to be obsessive about the the learner's experience of what's happening and that means from the get-go and me and steve we've spoken about this before at the beginning of a lesson you have four or five minutes grace where students going to give you a chance don't spend that time talking <laughs> about your cv spend the time talking about why they should be excited about what you're going to do in the next hour. What value is it going to deliver them? What what misconceptions is it going to address? How is it going to be exciting for them? How is it going to push their career forward? Whether, whether they're five years old or 25 years old. So for me, I'm, I'm very happy that the, the coin fell that way, Steve. But anyway, hit me up. Well, this is all very interesting and self-effacing and, um, and putting the students at the heart of the journey and blah, 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 blah. But I have a few issues. First thing is that I, whilst I agree with your your fundamental thesis that um, it's about the learners and their journey, not your journey as a teacher, I don't know if the learners are as aware of this as, as we podcasters claim to be. And um, if you have a situation where your learners are expecting um, to be guided, to be taught... Uh, and you are going in there expecting basically them to take control of their learning, but they're not aware of that fact. Um, I think that breaking them into that, what could be a new way of approaching this, which really gives them a lot of agency, I think it could be pretty, it could come across as you're just shirking your responsibilities. It could come mm. across as a teacher that's not really prepared and um, is just kind of leaving them in the lurch, if done badly, just purely because of, of what they're expecting to get and their background. So this will depend on where you're teaching. 
So I think that there could be a case for saying, yeah, although this will not become the dominant template for your teaching, at the start, you do give them a sense of the person who's guiding them. Mm. Um, my second point would be, um, if we go back to um, really fundamental stuff about persuading and influencing people, and we look at ways of, uh, like, rhetorical ways of, of achieving influence and, um, and authority, um, it comes down to pathos, ethos, and logos. Pathos being the emotional appeal, believe in what I'm saying. Logos being the logical appeal, like this is this makes sense. And uh, ethos, um, which sounds like ethics, but is actually um, creating authority in yourself by demonstrating that you know what you're talking about. This is how we we convince. So you 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 can be as logical and well argued, or you can be very mm-hmm. emotional, but none of it works unless you ground yourself in a position of I am somebody worth listening to. Mm-hmm. And um, whether we like it or not, learners will will want. They will feel reassured if they get that. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. that, that and that's where where we can't. Again, it's linked to my first point. But we can't assume that they're on the same wavelength as us in terms of the teacher's role in the classroom and their relatively high level of agency in driving their own learning. Yeah, I suppose it, as always, it depends on context and um, you know what kind of teaching are. Yeah, what country you're in, what kind of institution are you in, what kind of students are, are you working with, and what's the particular norm, uh, you, you know, in in that situation. And maybe if we take a step toward, towards synergy, I'd say <laughs> we could think about think about these channel these channels of communication. And you know, I've I've just said, you know, I, I won't talk about myself. You know, I'll I'll sacrifice my ego at the beginning of the session. But I'm not telling the whole truth there because. When I teach a university module, I'll always put some information online, including a little bit about my, you know, my 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 profile, you know, mm. my career. So mm. it's actually a question of choosing the right channel here, yeah. I think. And uh, for me, you know, I still I still maintain that that couple of minutes at the beginning of the, of, of the session that's that's sacred time for creating motivation for the session. But maybe you, you've got other channels. Maybe you've got an online platform. Where you can share some information, uh, maybe you have another medium for for, for sharing information uh, with the students, mm. another channel. Mm. But it's a question of getting the right stuff on the right channels, and so yeah, yeah. No, and as ever, I think that we kind of both have valid points. What you said at the start is absolutely right. That uh, especially this idea of beginning each lesson or beginning the whole semester or term with uh, stuff about yourself. I would also, I would that would go against the screen with me as well and I, and I don't do mm-hmm. it despite what I just argued um but what I argued is true as well and I must admit I've I've had a, a real evolution in this um back at the start when I was really teaching alone up front just out of university came to Germany and just needed some money to pay the rent and had had some teaching experience some literally work experience and a, and a TOEFL course I'd done at uni and so I got a part-time job teaching at university and had zero training and I thought um as a lot of people do, that <coughs> I need to talk about where I come from and stuff. So I did, and the the learners didn't mind it. They thought it was kind of mm. vaguely funny, but it, but it wasn't it wasn't the best use of the time at all. And mm. then I moved away from it, and then uh, more recently have been doing basically. Okay, my name's Stephen. Beyond that, it's not really relevant. And really, kind of 
overemphasizing the it's really not about me, it's about you, and then throwing them straight into a highly interactive activity and then trying to roll that activity into another one. And then I realized um, a few semesters ago, like it was sort of week four or five and none of the students had any idea who I was, <laughs> really. I was, yeah. Um, yeah. And and it was actually, it was becoming problematic because a little, mm. a few weeks into the semester, I did have some lessons where I needed to deliver some teacher talk. Um, mm. We'd established some basic principles, sort of foundational principles of the module, and I needed to start sort of really bring it, to start moving it into this, the realm of like, let's start using these concepts. But I noticed that when I gave my little speech, I was not really engaging the students much because they were sort of thinking, who is this? guy again because I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd utterly i'd managed to yeah counterproductively so divorce the learning from from me as a person mm. that it just felt like somebody was in, interrupting them um and I, I don't know if this maybe sounds cocky like the activities were so incredibly good that, that, that was not the case at mm. all it was just like um I, I hadn't given them a chance to connect with me at all and i hadn't really connected mm. with them as a whole group i connected with them individually or in their groups because I've been walking around in the previous lessons as they've been doing their activities. But I hadn't, we hadn't had that moment of you're a group, I'm here, I'm, I am the one standing up and talking and you do have to listen and mm -hmm. we can't get away from that, that, that fundamental power dynamic. And we had, we'd lost that. So now I'm moving back and I'm trying to yeah. synergize the benefits of both approaches, like you just said, by avoiding the first five minutes. That doesn't, that's not the time for the introduction, but, mm -hmm. um, uh, using a different time in the lesson, maybe maybe a little way in when we've established some of the basic concepts and then it's a good time for me to have a couple of minutes where I give them a bit more insight into who I am, where I'm coming from and let that build over the weeks. Uh, not do it all in the first week, but let it build. And then also, um, yeah, bringing, bringing social networking and that kind of thing to bear. This is another interesting topic that we have to deal with. Like what to what extent should teachers um, or or could teachers use their online presence to support their teaching mm. and to what extent is it something personal which should be strictly separated mm. from your teaching but um that's something i'm interested in looking yeah. into this semester that i tell them this is my twitter this is maybe my instagram and then run those accounts in such a way that i know my students will mm. be um will have access to them because when, when you're talking about, there you're talking about, okay, so I needed to, um, you know, stop the lesson. I needed to do some teacher talk. Yeah. I think there, there you're talking about having authority. Yeah. And I think there's, with ethos maybe? Yeah, ethos. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas I, I think there's there's something to be said for also having um, a personal connection. Yeah. I think that, that adds authenticity uh, to what you're saying. Um so you know, if 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 you're a lecturer, mm. and the first the first uh, setting in which you meet the students, you're going to speak for an hour anyway. Yeah, because that's pretty much what lecturing is, or maybe mm. or maybe or maybe it's not. But maybe well, maybe we'll talk about that yeah. sometime. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Well, it is it isn't actually like that in my lectures, but yeah. that allows you to establish that ethos, that yeah. authority. Authority, yeah. Mm. So mm. so for me, I think the authority is always there. But um, something I've had success with is. Um, showing some parts of your personality or some information about you not in a kind of david brent chilled out entertainer kind of way but there's, <laughs> oh, we've all but done there's it. a few things yeah oh, oh absolutely the lecturer uh, entertainer oh yes uh, no, I wouldn't, oh we're I wouldn't, all guilty yeah there's yeah there's another another podcast there but there's yeah just some stuff like, like i always talk about having a dog yeah mm -hmm. i talk about um nottingham forest 
oh. and how, how, how Nottingham Forest are terrible. Um, <laughs> and there's, there's about two or three things that every lecture um, I just throw in, David Brent style. Now, yeah. every, every lecture I reference in some way. Mm. And you're showing uh, that, that you're a person. You're mm. showing that you have emotion. Mm. You're showing that you have vulnerability. Mm. And I think that doesn't contribute to your authority but contributes to your uh, personality to your to, to the authenticity it, of your message yeah i mean it's the, it's, it's the pathos um appeal the um the appeal to emotion i suppose um that you're mm. just you know just just a regular guy chilled out entertainer <laughs> and um <laughs> oh, and and that that helps as well i think that um I think either extreme is wrong to base the whole to base the whole thing to create a pulse a personality cult around yourself. Um, I, we've all been guilty of that as well. When when given oh, yeah. when given oh, on yeah. a plate the authority that you are given by getting a, a teaching job, um, it's it's very tempting to. And it, in a way, it's it's the obvious thing to do because what you what you do have is yourself and your personality and your jokes, be they good or bad, and your and it's the quickest way to develop a connection is to base it around around yourself it's yes. harder and you need right. more experience i think and more and you have to have thought about it in advance to base your authority in in, in the learning and say this is really not about not say but communicates it's not about me guys it's about you guys and your learning i'm just here to facilitate mm. that process um but I think that there's there's a medium if if you're opening yourself up and making it about you with the end um, the, 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 in your mind, the clear aim of of increasing accessibility to learning with your students by making that they feel they can ask you questions or they feel more relaxed. You manage to create a more relaxed, less tense atmosphere, which and disinhibits their communication. Then, then that's all legit. But it's a question mm -hmm. of figuring out why you're doing it. Are you doing it because because you just assumed that was the right thing to do, or are you doing it for a specific reason that you've thought about? And yeah. um, and then everyone can calibrate that to his or her needs based on the culture that they're working. Okay, so the topic for today was the role of confidence in the learning space. We sort of went off on a few different tangents, which is not entirely unusual for us on this podcast. Mm. Talked about... Um, the praise sanction ratio catching them being good um all that kind of stuff i'd like to formalize things a little bit using and listeners will be surprised to hear this a, a graph that i've developed um I feel a matrix coming up um, and we, we have we this is the matrix moment um I, I started looking at thinking about confidence and i had this problem i'll be i'll be quite clear I'll be quite honest about overconfident male learners uh, underconfident female learners and mm -hmm. I was having the effect of when I was trying to do generally confidence boosting in the class, uh, just encouraging them, I was giving even more confidence to the already overconfident learners, generally male. Mm. And mm. it was like an exponential curve. There, the rate of the rate which, which, with which they would accrue even more confidence was vastly mm. quicker than the rate that the less confident learners, often uh, female, to be honest, would would. So I was actually, um, it was an exponential process. I was actually. While I was boosting net confidence, I was also increasing yeah. the confidence uh, mm. deficit, the gap between the most confident and the least confident students. And yeah. then I realized, I was like, oh, man, this is really not working out at all. I'm, um, 
I'm doing exactly the opposite of what I want to do, um, which I am trying to kind of bring up the confidence in those students that, that ought to be more confident whilst leaving the other, you know, having the other students just, 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 just be fine as they are. And, and this is no good. And it occurred to me as like, well, hang on, what actually is confidence? So that's a question mm. I'll ask you, Chris. What mm. is, Ooh. what does it mean to be confident? Or what does it mean to lack confidence? That's what we've got to figure out mm. here. Well, I think in the context of the classroom, you're willing to try new things. Mm. Yeah. Um, is what I'd say. Um, I think that that's what you need as a teacher for students to yeah, be willing to have an environment where it's safe, uh, where they feel encouraged to, to, to try new things. I think, I think that's mm. what, just off the top of my head, that's, that, that's what I go for, yeah. I think that what you've, what you've um, pointed out there is the, the manifestation of what I want to get at, which is that confidence is an appropriate awareness of your ability an accurate mm. estimation of your own ability that's a good point yeah because uh, to understand what a to understand what a new thing is you have to you have to understand where where you are now you yeah know, can, can i actually do that thing so yeah. there is some implied metacognitive awareness there yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean if, if somebody comes into the room and seems confident in a job interview a presentation or something then i think what that means is that that person feels secure in what he or mm. she is able to do and and delivers on that if somebody mm. what does it mean if somebody is overconfident it sort of implies that by their actions you get the feeling that their assessment of their own ability is a bit higher to be honest than their actual yeah. ability is and then if somebody appears underconfident what that means is that we get the feeling that his or her ability is there, but for some other reason, something else is holding them back and they don't mm. quite believe in the ability that they that they have. Sure. Um, so what we could create is a matrix where we maybe have actual ability on the vertical and then we have awareness of that ability on the horizontal. Mm -hmm. So we have ability okay. and awareness. And the the combination of those two things becomes becomes confidence mm -hmm. if you are aware of your ability. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be good at something to be confident. Yep. If you are if your ability mm -hmm. is not that great, but you are aware sure. of that fact, then you can exactly. still be an extremely confident person. Um mm. It doesn't imply mastery of anything. Um, the problems occur when there's a mismatch, when you have somebody who is, who basically thinks they're better than they actually are, or yeah. somebody who thinks they're they're less capable than they actually are. Mm -hmm. And um, and it is those two cases that we have to be very careful of in the the learning space because they have to be approached with a radically different method. Sure. Um, now, it, it, what are your what are your thoughts on this? It, when you think about the different categories of confidence in learners, so you end up with basically high ability learners with good awareness and good confidence, but that that's all great. Then you end up with mm -hmm. high ability learners with low level of confidence, who actually mm -hmm. you know have the ability but don't have the, the confidence. Then the other side, on the lower ability range, you have the low ability learners, but they're very aware that they're low ability and 
alarmingly, you have those low ability learners who are not aware that there are certain deficits there. Are those four groups that you can that you can when you think of the people that you teach, can yeah. you locate those those types in your lessons? Absolutely, absolutely. And the first thing that comes to mind is they're not uh, evenly distributed across the four oh, across the four cases there. Mm-hmm. And the certainly what you said about having the you know the uh, overconfident students who tend to be tend to be male that's certain mm-hmm. that certainly resonated with me. And I think early, early in my career I kind of gravitated to them mm. because it get, gave me confidence as a teacher mm. to know that there's at least one student who's getting something out of it but there's mm. all kind of counterproductive effects so yeah i think that's that's probably the least populated section of of, of the matrix set mm. Mm. i would say where you've got people who are um over so, so low a bit probably low ability but, but overconfident overconfident mm. yeah i think that's pro- probably the, the, the least populated um but probably the most populated certainly in university session would be high ability and and low confidence yeah yeah so i mean i mean high ability but not that much awareness of that ability but that Mm. i think is great because yeah in a way those students are the most the easiest to teach maybe because um, the ability is there, they just don't realize it. So mm-hmm. you don't even have to teach them anything. <laughs> they, they can do it, but they have not been, they have not, they, they need to be given the support and the emotional tools to leverage their untapped potential. Yeah. Um, how then do you give them what they need whilst at the mm-hmm. same time reining in the excessive confidence of these lower ability overconfident learners and let's not forget that that mismatch is because they are not aware so actually you do you do have a bridge there in both cases it's a lack of awareness of their own ability but it's a lack of awareness in in different directions and and yeah um, yeah i mean but in 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 the case of the high ability student with low confidence mm. it could be it could be too much too much self-awareness there, you know, almost yeah. kind of, kind of, so, so that it verges on kind of um, self-obsession, which mm. can have this kind of um, effect of, uh, you know, paralysis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because you know, because they're, they're they're too worried about stepping out mm. and making um, um, and making a mistake. So, but yeah, it's kind of kind of a it's kind of a semantic point. Is exactly what we mean by self-awareness? But um, but that uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, but, well, you're right. I mean, there's students who are painfully self-aware. I mean, I'm thinking in the age of these are students who've grown up with all of the um, kind of formative assessment mm-hmm. um, tools that we've that we've spoken about. You know, that's that's been kind of drilled into them. Mm. So by the time they get to the university age, you know, that they they you know they know exactly exactly what their level is. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not a lack of that information about where they are. It's, mm-hmm. it's an inability to kind of push forward or, or maybe a sense of kind of, uh, you know, this, this is my level. I'm so aware of all these levels, you know, I mm-hmm. found my level here, um, which is almost, as I said, it's too much, it's, it's too much reflect, reflection at the metacognitive level, mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. 
for some um, of those students by the time they're into their university careers. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it, it, this it's a tightrope, clearly. You go in any direction too far and you start making things difficult for, for cert, certain learners. Uh, mm. I think that I think that broadly, though, um, uh, making awareness a topic. Uh, we always end up at the same point in these every single episode yeah. of this. Keep it me- <laughs> keep it metacognitive. But yeah. the, the the fact is that that both under and overconfidence can be addressed by looking uh, by by reflection, by reflecting on on one's own ability, and actually mm. trying to be honest with yourself in both directions. What. I have had some success in doing, although it's a dangerous brink. It's, it's, it's just kind of a, a bit of dangerous br- classroom brinksmanship. Is to mm-hmm. actually form groups or pairs in which you deliberately bring together what you consider to be, to be over and underconfident students, yep. learners, have them tackle uh, a task individually, and then have them discuss their two different interpretations or answers to the task so that they are forced to confront forced sounds a bit much they are encouraged to confront Mm. just how disparate um their assessment of their own ability can be so Mm. that the overconfident student can be be forced to confront he it's going to be a he is forced to realize wow other people have a very different view of what constitutes good work here and so yeah. the underconfident student can just see, wow, really? That he thinks that that's enough? That's mm-hmm. that's incredible. And um, if you do it, I mean, like I say, it's it's a, a high risk strategy because you are bringing together. You also bring together learners that probably wouldn't naturally work together. I could imagine uh, they would. They would maybe tend to even avoid each other in the in the mm-hmm. learning space. But then that's also maybe a good thing to bring them together. And what you do by doing that is you try and have it happen organically. So you are not um you that you the teacher being the one that has to say to people look you're not as smart as you think you are i'm afraid i mean you wouldn't say it like mm-hmm. that but you you managed to sort of move it away from yourself mm. um yeah what we haven't talked about is that we've talked about the two quadrants um the high ability low low confidence and then low ability high confidence what we haven't talked about can I just yes, talk about yes. the um, the high ability, low confidence yeah. student? I mean, yeah. I mean, again, I think it comes down to um, channels and um, how you're communicating. Yeah. You know, the d- different That's ways different point. ways you can communicate. Because um, I, um, you know, when I mark the exams at the end of the module, they're they're usually you know pretty good. Yeah. But when you're doing the classroom stuff the level of interaction you get, you know, between the students and teacher student mm. is always a lot lower than the, 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 than the performance in the exams, which, mm. which suggests to me that a lot of students are doing a lot of learning uh, outside the classroom. Yeah. So I make sure, um, you know, using an online platform mm. that I'm getting, you know, I, well, I put two things on there every, well, three things on there every week. So after the session, the old consolidation exercise mm. with the with the model answer to that, mm. and I also do my um, most sessions. I do my reflections on 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 the session right. about 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 how it went. Uh, you know what was difficult to teach, what 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 was less less difficult to teach, uh, which at the meta meta level is encouraging is encouraging yeah. them them to reflect as well. Yeah. But if if this happens every week, yeah. So they get the same stuff every week, the same consolidation resources. Um, 
I think that's what your high level, low confidence students needs mm. because it's given them it's it's giving them the stuff um, outside of the classroom yeah. setting where they don't feel compelled to vocalize yeah. a lot and, and maybe even to interact with people, but it's giving them this, the, the tools they need yeah. um, to direct their own learning and to, and, and to push to push to a high level. So again, I think if we bring channels of communication into this, because yeah. um, I know for a fact there's students who've got a first on my module mm-hmm. who I've never, who, who I've never spoken to yeah. or who have actually actively shied away mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. from, from, from speaking to me. And, um, you know, I, in the past, I'll try to kind of, you know, get them to speak to me, yeah. get them to engage, but mm. yeah. I'm not, not sure about that. So, so you've got to think about is, is other ways to get the information out there, the, the information they need. It, it's all about inclusion, as always. You're, you're figuring out ways to make your learning accessible to as many people as possible. And um, channels of communication, are, um, as we talked about a couple of podcasts ago, choosing the right one and making it work for the right purposes is absolutely the way forward. This is this is a really good point that you make here, and um, and it's worth thinking about. I think that the final the final sort of conclusion that I've come to, um, if we just um, cycle back to what we're talking about, uh, ability and and awareness of that ability and the relationship that, that has with yeah. confidence, is um, in when I started teaching. I think this is the intuitive approach that you kind of have. You divide the class into two. Um, the confident students and the less confident students and confidence is the is the dividing line so in the more confident students yes we have generally male you have people that will put their hand up that they will engage with you um that will um and that's why you want to limit your teacher talk with a whole group because you just end up talking to the same three or four guys and then uh, the characteristic behavior traits of the less confident students like you said they may prove to be much more capable than you realize but they're not they're not really ready to participate at the same level mm. And it's a shame because the insights that they could bring, if they felt comfortable mm. participating, would benefit very. But you, but you don't. But you need to. You can't putting pressure on them by saying yeah. you tell me what you think. I know you think that ain't the way to go here. I think that the problem is that that division is not the right one. Um, mm. Low low and high confidence isn't the point. The point mm. is to divide the class by awareness. Those people in the room that are aware of their ability and have a good thing, and those people that don't. And in the don't, the less aware category, you will conveniently find both the under and the overconfident students. Because mm. under and overconfidence are both symptoms of a fundamental misunderstanding of one's own ability. That's what it yep. So you end up with um, a much more, I think, a much more productive um, grouping of the class. You have those people who are aware of their ability and thus display a level of confidence, um, which is appropriate. And it's they're not overconfident and they're not shy. They're just, they're just fine. But they're not all geniuses. They're not all brilliant. Mm. And you can really demonstrate this. You can take a, um, a few students from that and say, look, this person and this person and this person, they're not all working at the same ability, but that's fine because mm. we're not all the, the same ability. And we've got different strengths in other areas of our lives. The important thing is that they understand that and so this yeah. person never comes across as cocky or overconfident or an idiot because he's aware that he's got certain deficiencies. Um, mm. And this person here, who seems to be very capable, doesn't seem to be cocky either because the confidence is, 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 is the awareness means the confidence seems backed up with actual ability. It's not overconfidence. 
And mm. so you have a range of positive examples at all ability levels that you can use to then reinforce this idea of awareness as the key to confidence um, rather than ability being the key to confidence. Because that is going to be the problem on the other side. The overconfident students will not have realized that um, their ability is not where they think it is and therefore their confidence feels misplaced and they feel arrogant or cocky or, or generally it's not con constructive their attitude. The underconfident students will realize, oh, okay, I don't, the fact that I maybe believe I'm not brilliant at this isn't the point. I don't have to have mastered this in order to be confident. Mm. I just need to have a commensurate, um, oh, oh, no, not a, a fair assessment of my own ability. And mm. you make that the metric. Like, how well do you understand your own level, your own skills? Yeah. And if you focus on that awareness, the confidence will take care of itself. And mm. you don't need to worry about people putting pressure on you, saying you should be more confident. Why aren't you more confident? Yeah. Or you should be less confident. You know, you, mm. you're cocky. You're, you're, you're not as smart as you think you are. This is, that, none of that is good None of that is constructive feedback, I don't think, for a mm. teacher to, to, to learners. What are they supposed mm. to do with that? Yeah. Um, more, more effective is look at this person. He or she is not, is all there, but, but the confidence aren't there because, because the awareness is there. So let's focus on mm. that, guys. Let's stop being worried about being too confident or being worried about being not confident enough. Let's, um, let's make it about an understanding of ourselves and, and, and let the confidence take care of itself. And I think that this is... I don't know. This is where I, where I'm moving to in the way I try and deal with yeah. confidence issues in in the in the learning space. It it sounds like things like uh, so so if we're talking about awareness, yeah, um, we're talking about um, awareness of the level level you're currently at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the way to well, there's different ways to foster this awareness, but one way is to have um, the assessment criteria clear. Yeah. And a formative assessment happening. Yeah. But not to the extent that a student's kind of going to flip it on you. Like, like, like we said at the beginning of the podcast. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, if a student's going to develop self awareness, we've got to give them the conceptual framework yes. to be able to, to, yep. to visualize it in their own head and to, and, and to express it. So I can see, I can see those things helping. Metacognition, as always. Keep it metacognitive, guys. I think we're going to have some some mugs and some T-shirts made up pretty soon for um, alone up front. <laughs> and keep it metacognitive is going to be the um, is going to be the the rallying cry of the podcast. <laughs> so here we are, um, just about an hour gone. I think we can begin to wind things up. Um, as always, we have a top tip to round things off, and then Chris is going to take us home. Um, my top tip for this week it's very simple. I always say that, then it turns out not to be simple. Um, if you're planning your teaching, plan backwards. That means mm. the first stage of your planning should be looking at the last week of your teaching, figure out when mm. that is, and then count how many weeks you have to teach. It may seem like a ridiculously elementary thing, and maybe you do it already. But for years, I began my planning with lesson one, got bored by planning about lesson three, and then didn't mm. even look at how many lessons I'd have to plan altogether. Also, I was terrified because I knew it would be many and I didn't yeah. want I didn't want to know. <laughs> I've learned that the first thing you should do is look is face the fear and find out how many how much time you're going to spend with these learners. 
and it gives you a framework for understanding everything. So I just did this yesterday. I looked at next semester. I'm looking at 13 weeks for most of my courses and 12 weeks for one. That means 13 three-hour sessions that have to be planned. And although it sounds daunting at first, it's much better, believe you, you will, your future self will thank you because you can give your students a clear timeline on what's going to happen and you, more importantly, give yourself a clear timeline. You have an end point and you can start thinking, okay, if that's when the exam is going to be, then working backwards, I can, I, can, I can test this and this and this and then working backwards, I have this many weeks and suddenly you work from the macro to the micro level rather than starting yeah. with lesson one and working upwards. Um, it's not really a top tip. A top tip should be something practical that you can implement tomorrow. But I guess this is a top approach. No, I think no, I think it's very, very relevant at this time of year as well. There'll there'll be a lot of people out, out there doing planning. I think I think it applies to uh, if you're planning for a term. Uh, also, if you're planning, you know, just uh, you, you don't have a timeline as such, but you're planning the content of a new uh, course or module. You know, start from the whole, uh, work to the parts. Yeah. So as you said. How many sessions have you got? Um, well, starting with how's it going to be assessed, of course, to mm -hmm. begin with, then mm -hmm. how many sessions have you got? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because once you avoid the situation where you're like, okay, lesson one, uh, first I'm going to do this, mm -hmm. second I'm going to do this, that's going to get you get you into a rabbit hole. Very soon you lose sight of the big picture that's and then, right. you, then you lose your, lose your motivation. So no, it makes a lot of sense to me. And um, if you don't have a set number of weeks, maybe you've just been engaged to work for a company, do a course, or maybe you're just doing uh, training and they've just said, right, we're going to do it every Thursday. Can you organize? And it's, and it's not clear. No one said to you how long it's going to last. Then why don't you set that limit yourself? And you say, right, mm. um, I'm going to run this for six weeks and then I'm going to do a cut. And that gives you a chance to say to people, right, we, I've created an initial phase. It's going to be six weeks and this is what we're going to try and cover. And then at the end of that phase, we're going to have a kind of a, a bit of feedback and we're going to have a, a debrief and find out what's working and what's not working. And even if you have not been asked to do that, believe me, you, both your learners and whoever has asked you to do the teaching, they will all appreciate and they'll think, well, that's good, good that that person did that because it gives everyone a chance to reflect and um, and, and, and feedback on, on what's working and what's not. And it gives you a chance, it gives you much more power and a feeling of control because you know where this is going. So, so either start from the end of semester or term and work backwards or impose your own end whatever you think is best make it three weeks make it two months whatever you think works whatever you can manage um and even if you don't plan every single aspect of it you may want to let things devolve uh, evolve organically you will have that end point and everyone and that will create a conceptual um framework that everyone can then slot into and you can refer mm. to that and um i think it really it i wish i'd done that earlier i mm. really do but there you go that's the whole point of learning and um and doing podcasts like this, I suppose, that you pass on whatever you've figured out so other people can get there a bit quicker than you did. Absolutely. Chris. That's, that's, that's a good top tip. And, and we should say to uh, the dear listeners that if they have any top tips they'd like to share, mm. we would love to share them on the podcast. We will, of course, credit you. Of course and, we will. Of course uh, we will. And, but let us know. Um, because we don't have uh, an infinite number of, of top tips. Uh, contrary to how, it, to how it may appear, so um, yeah, we'd love that. to. Yeah, we'd love to. Ha we'd love to have one from a from a listener. 
Okay, well, that's pretty much it, folks. Um, hope you've enjoyed uh, the podcast and you keep listening. Feel free to tell your friends about it or your colleagues if they think it might be useful. We're going to keep doing these as we get head into the autumn term. Um, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, Chris, you're going to take us home, I believe. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we will be back with you next week for episode 12 of the Learn Up Front podcast. Bye.